need to be like Beyonce has the alter ego Sasha Fierce, right? You need to find your Sasha Fierce. Ever imagine you could be mentored and guided by some of the most influential leaders in business? That's where 40 Minute Mentor comes in. I'm passionate about making business mentorship accessible to everyone. So whether you're just beginning your career or you're looking for advice in taking the leap and starting a new venture, or perhaps you're scaling a rocket ship, this show is designed to cover everything from the ground up in the next 40 minutes. Your mentor for the next 40 minutes is the amazing Rachel Carroll, CEO and founder of Kuru Kids. Following a very successful career in academia, strategy consulting and healthcare, Rachel set up London's fastest growing childcare brand, Kuru Kids, in 2016. And it's been going from strength to strength ever since, raising over £40 million in VC funding and receiving widespread acclaim for disrupting the childcare industry. In our chat, Rachel shares some great advice from her scaling journey and reflects on the importance of finding a business idea that you're truly passionate about. She also provides some candid insights from shifting the business model of Kuru Kids in the middle of a lockdown and the importance of focusing on culture, especially when going through times of uncertainty. I loved our conversation and hope you will too. So sit back, relax and enjoy this episode with the brilliant Rachel Carroll. Hi, Rachel. Welcome to the 40 Minute Mentor. I'd like to kick off our podcast today with a 30 second snapshot of your CV. So if you're ready, please finish these sentences with the first things that come to your mind. Okay. Are you ready? (laughs) I am. I think so. Fabulous. Okay. When I was younger, I always wanted to be a diplomat. I thought I would get to go to exotic places and escape my boring hometown. Oh, amazing. Okay, good. That's that's a good one. My first job was? Uh, well, very ironically, a babysitter. I did loads and loads of babysitting when I was a teenager. There we go. So that inspired the future career. Okay, we'll get to that. And when starting my career, I wish I'd have known? How important it was to understand digital product. I was very late to understanding product management. And I wish I'd been earlier to understanding that. Brilliant. Okay, thank you. And a big one that we'll, I guess, get into in more detail in a bit, but I started a business because... I was annoyed. (laughs) I was annoyed that what I thought should exist didn't exist yet. And I felt compelled to build it myself. Brilliant. Brilliant. Looking forward to digging into that. I'm most energized at work when I'm... Recruiting or anything where I get to communicate my vision for Cory Kids. I get really excited when I think about it. Love it. Love it. And the most exciting thing in my calendar this week is? Anything to do with child carer training I love. And my favorite one this week, on Friday at lunchtime, I'm talking to a pediatrician who is obsessed with baking and oh, wow. <laughs> yes, the, the, the intersection of those two things. And she's pioneering baking therapy for children with special needs. And I cannot wait to find out about that. That sounds incredible. Love that. Well, I'm, I'm intrigued. I'll have to follow up and find out a bit more about that. My, uh, my daughter is all into Junior Bake Off at the moment. So uh, a big, big baking fans in this household. And finally, can you share something that we wouldn't learn from your CV? So whether that's a perceived failure or setback in your career that you've learned from? Mm, it's not really 
say a failure, but something that you couldn't learn from my CV is that I really love going to, I was going to say exotic, but it's more like sort of totalitarian, extreme political destinations. Okay. So when I left university, my sort of gift to myself before I started work that I I spent my my first professional services signing bonus on was a trip to North Korea. And I went around North Korea for eight days. And it's it's certainly different to full moon parties in Thailand and various other things, but I'd imagine equally fascinating. Yeah, well, for, for I was a total political nerd um, and uh, I just finished a politics degree, so it made sense. Good stuff. Well, thank you so much for sharing that, Rachel. And I guess really wanted to to dig into your your background and experience next. So you're you're the founder and CEO of Curry Kids. You recently won the title of Best Businesswoman in Technology, which is incredible. So congratulations on that. For our listeners at home, though, would love to learn a bit more about your your background because I know you you graduated from Oxford with a PhD, and you've had some incredible roles over the years, including with the NHS and 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 with corporates as well. So. I'd love to learn a bit about, did you always know what you wanted to be? And, and was there always an aspiration to to run your own company one day? I think there was, yeah. So I know I just answered the question before, what was your first job? And I said babysitter. <laughs> it was a bit hard to choose which was my first job because the truth is when I was really little, like, I don't know, eight, eight, nine, ten, all the way, all the way through my, te- my teens, I always wanted to do, I always did sort of little odd jobs. And uh, they sort of, you know, partly for my parents, but also sort of around the neighborhood. And I guess the context is I grew up in a very, very safe, very boring small town in the bottom of New Zealand and where no one really paid much attention to safeguarding of any kind. And um, and so I was very free to sort of roam around the neighborhood. And I used to make flyers and put them through people's letterboxes and say that I could do all sorts of different little odd jobs, basically. And um, and I, I loved I always loved earning my own money. And, and I was always doing little schemes. And at my school as well, you know, I had, for example, I had a little scheme where I would buy baked goods. I would basically take an order order form from like a local bakery and I would sell like pre-sell stuff to the to the teachers and take orders and then go back to the bakery, pick up the, bake, the baking goods and then like sell them, like deliver them to the teachers. And there seems to be a thread here around baking is really okay. interesting. <laughs> but I also sold I sold a lot of chocolate bars. You know, when I was a little bit younger, I used to sell flowers. I used to just I used to do all sorts of little things. So I think I kind of always had that that idea that like I liked the idea of going into business. And then I decided that I didn't know enough to kind of do it properly. This is as I got a bit older. And so I thought, well, you know, I need to go to university for a really long time. And then I need to go to professional services firm, which was McKinsey, and I need to learn how to do business. And I thought that was kind of what you had to do. And it's, it's, I think it's amazing now looking at so many founders that I know who are in their 20s and they're doing it with none of the experience that, you know, I thought I had to get. And it's really inspiring. And I, I think I was wrong, actually. Like, I don't think I had to take the long route. I did take the long route. But I always wanted to come back to starting a business myself. And then the other reason it took me ages, because I founded Cory Kids when I was 36, which is, you know, that's reasonably old. And the other reason it took a really long time is I was pretty certain that I wanted to really deeply believe in whatever it was that I did. And I just 
couldn't get excited about any other idea until until I was 36. And not for want of trying, I was constantly having ideas. And I would get so far as I would make a maybe make a financial plan, I would do some research. You know, my one of my cupboards is full of, um, uh, to give you an idea about this, one of my cupboards, cupboards is full of um, seaweed powder, because I got really excited about seaweed at one point, I thought, right, <laughs> I, I still actually think this is a really good idea. I think someone needs to make seaweed really cool, like make it a modern, urban, like really aspirational, okay. cool brand. Heard it here first. <laughs> that is a really good business. But the the thing was, I just sort of got over it myself and I didn't sustain the enthusiasm. And then the reason I started Koru Kids was because it was the first thing where my enthusiasm never went away. Like the more I got into it, I just became more determined and more excited to build this. Whereas every other idea I'd ever had, I had an initial flush of enthusiasm and then I kind of got over it. But I never got over it. That's really interesting. And it's clear, you clearly have had this entrepreneurialism within you from a very early age, from, from all the different types of sort of ventures and initiatives you, you had did when you were a kid. Do you think you're born with that? Or is that something that you just kind of, is that from your family? Where did that come from? It's funny because my parents are both teachers. So you'd say, you know. Oh, just like me. There we go. Oh, that's amazing how many people's parents are teachers. <laughs> so, you know, you you might think, well, that's not very entrepreneurial. But Actually, who they are, and this is because of their specific backgrounds. You know, my my dad, he's quite old. He's, he's in his 80s now. He was a child of the Depression. He was born in 1938. And his family growing up was very poor, had absolutely no spare money. And so they reused everything. And they, you know, they never bought anything. Everything had to be made. And so he kind of grew up with this extreme kind of independence and self-sufficiency in deep in him and then and then my mom came from a very different place she grew up on a sheep farm and she's one of like six generations of sheep farm I'm the first I'm the first in, in seven generations of that family not to have been born on a sheep farm and when she was growing up they never bought anything either and they made everything themselves as well and that was because they were just on a very isolated sheep farm also with not a lot of spare money but a lot of like tools and stuff lying around so I think but I grew up with this deep not just from my family I think this is a very Kiwi tray actually this deep assumption that you can kind of do anything and that you don't need to be able to rely on on other people not to say there's not strong community there really is but it's more like self-reliance is very prized and the idea that you can you should be able to turn your hand to most things and just give it a go and it's probably going to be fine and if it's a bit rough around the edges it doesn't really matter just get on with it work hard like all of these seeds of of being a startup founder I think are there just from that background yeah definitely I, I love that and I think some of the the best founders I know have definitely got that resilience and self-sufficient sort of attitude and and like you said and we'll come on to you, they're really passionate about solving a particular problem before we come on to Corey Kids I, I'm interested you've clearly got this varied background you spent time in consulting you worked at in the NHS you, you've had different roles would you say from that experience of, of different industries and sort of being a senior person in, in other organizations before starting your own business, did that help in terms of a sort of seeing the bigger picture of owning and running a company? How, how did those experiences play into your experience as a CEO? Yeah, it definitely helped a lot. I mean, I, you, you'll never know what the, the counterfactual would be, right? Like, I don't know what would have happened if I hadn't had them, but I certainly draw on that experience a lot. And um, 
from McKinsey, I think I got a lot of formal training in how to structure problems, how to run workshops, how to run teams, you know, how to construct a high performing team, some really, really good like best practices around people. Um, and, you know, hiring, motivating, rewarding, like all of that stuff. I think that 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 has been really helpful. And then um, from the NHS, I think the main thing I took was how to think about system change and um, and how to, to how to sort of go go slow to go fast. You know, the NHS, you, you often think uh, or people will often say that it moves slowly and in many ways it does. But it has such incredible impact when it when it does a thing. And I, I started when I first started working in the NHS, I was like totally a loose cannon because I wanted everything to happen instantly. And I actually had to learn that, you know, that old proverb, like, if you want to go fast, go, go, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. I, I very much learned that from the NHS and became way more collaborative and way more comfortable, you know, having a conversation that didn't necessarily have action points at the end. Um, and you know, there is a value in that there is a value in just bringing people along with you. So that's what I took. And then what I took from going into lots of different organizations, um, that both, you know, at, at NHS and McKinsey through and, and other parts of my career is I, I saw a lot of what I didn't want to replicate. I saw a lot of bad behavior, a lot of toxic workplace cultures, and it made me really determined when I founded Cory Kids to, avoid a lot of the stuff that I saw and build something that was much more positive in terms of culture. Brilliant. And and I'm really looking forward to talking about culture, something that I'm particularly passionate about. But do you mind telling our, our listeners a little bit about the inspiration behind founding Corey Kids, how you knew it was the right time to, to launch? And I guess I'd be interested, do you think there is a perfect time? So there's sort of the right time to launch for the market and the right time to launch for you personally. And I think that I, I think the right time to launch for the market could have been years earlier. I mean, one of the things, the reason I said I was annoyed was because this should have existed. Someone else should have should have built this. I shouldn't have had to. <laughs> you know, childcare is just, it's such a terrible experience for parents. It's far too expensive. The employment for childcare is, is, is far, it's not nearly rewarding enough. It's far too precarious. It's far too lonely. The, the thought put into what what the children are actually doing all day is nowhere near enough. I mean, it's just it's so broken and inadequate from so many different angles, and that's what I observed when I had my first baby and and looked and started noticing this market. And it's a really big market, and you know it's had hardly any investment, hardly any innovation, hardly any attention from the tech people or digital people, product people, anything like that. Anyway, that's 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 the kind of thing that I was like, right, okay, well, I decided to do it then. So I wish someone had done it earlier. For me personally, in terms of the timing, so I was 36, and I don't know what the the average age of a founder is these days. It might be around that, actually. I might have been about, about on average. I think there's a popular myth, a narrative that founders are in their 20s, and, you know, some are, but a lot are. And um, for me personally, it was really important to have a lot of things in my life sorted before I embarked on this journey, which I knew was going to be, you know, a roller coaster and really hard and all the things that doing a startup is. And so for me, that meant I wanted to have some savings. So I, I you know, I sa- saved up enough that I could go full time and, you know, kind of survive for a bit because I had already had a successful career before I started this. And the other thing that was really important to me was having my relationships sorted out. 
And I, I've got a bunch of friends who are single and also doing a startup, and I have huge admiration for them. I think it just it must be so hard, you know, to have few fixed points in your life. And my husband, you know, and I, I got married at 33, and my husband is absolutely and utterly my rock for, you know, my my our family. I've got two kids. There's no way I could I could be doing all of this, including the business without him. So so it was the right time to do it. You know, I was I had been married for three years. I had a baby. I had noticed that this market was direly in need of someone building something like Cory Kids. And so it just all came together. Well done for you for doing it. I think there'll be lots of parents listening to this, nodding their head at all the things that you've said. And uh, I, I'm sure uh, many will be be customers. I think it's it's brilliant. And I think it's it's clearly, uh, it's a very interesting time for your business because, you know, businesses in education and childcare have clearly been affected quite significantly by the past year and the national lockdowns with business models being completely disrupted. So how have you navigated the different restrictions that have come through the pandemic and, and what sorts of pivots have you had to make with, with the business? Yeah, it's definitely been hard. I actually just saw this morning um, the A16C report on marketplaces and they have a section on childcare and they showed that childcare is down 61% through the pandemic year. And uh, we actually grew last year. So when I saw that, I'm feeling quite smug, actually. (laughs) (laughs) As you should. That's amazing. I I screenshotted it and said to my board, but, you know, not to say that was easy, like without blood and sweat went into that result. And so when it first happened, we lost a large amount of our, you know, demand falls off a cliff first lockdown in March. And um, lots of parents think that having a nanny in their home is illegal. It turns out it's not, but the government guidance is extremely unclear and remains unclear for at least the first six to eight weeks. So we were still operating. But what was very, very, very frustrating was I was talking to the government. Uh, I was involved in a, in, a, in a working group. And so I knew and I had been assured that what we were doing was legal and fine. But the government guidance, you know, fair, fair play to them. They, they were doing a lot of things very quickly, but the government guidance was unclear. And so we had people saying, you know, what, what are you doing? It's immoral. You shouldn't be doing this. And I knew it was explicit. It was allowed. That was very frustrating. But we lost about half of our supply because a lot of them had, you know, were from Italy or Portugal or whatever, and they all went home. So there, was, so there were lots of shocks to the marketplace. We tried out a whole bunch of tests. So we tried, you know, things like virtual nannying, which worked in some circumstances, and that was good. And then we immediately started just supporting our existing nannies and families as much as we possibly could. So my team were just freaking incredible. Like over the weekend, from the lockdown until the first Monday, they over the weekend, they came out with this weekly plans and like daily activities that we sent out to all our nannies. And this was I mean, it took schools months to get to this. Yeah, point. that's <laughs> incredible. It was, it was honestly, I was so proud. It was so great. And the other thing that my team did, which was so brilliant, was we actually invented our own furlough scheme before the government came out with their, with their furlough scheme. Really? We, of course, we didn't call it furlough. We called it Pause My Arrangement. It was the name of it. <laughs> and uh, not quite as snappy as furlough. <laughs> um, but we came out with it immediately. Again, like we came out with it the first week and we had, you know, all this, well, this policy, which was essentially our own furlough scheme. And so, we, you know, we sent this out and a whole load of um, families paused their arrangement with their nannies. And that allowed 
allowed the nanny family relationship to continue, even though the, the nanny was not actually going to work. And it meant that, you know, the nanny got a little bit of money. And that was really good. So we just hunkered down and focused on like, what can we do? Just don't even think about like, unit economics or, you know, long term product, like, well, let's just help wherever we can. Oh, another thing we did, which I was really proud of was um, we trained a whole bunch of medical students who wanted to provide free childcare for NHS workers. And, uh, and so that group formed very quickly and they approached us and said, you know, you train nannies, can you train us? And we said we would be delighted to. And we didn't charge a penny for that. We didn't make any money. You know, obviously it cost us, but we just wanted to be good citizens. And so, and it was just great being able to, you know, contribute in this very exciting like time of national need. And it felt like everyone was pulling together and, and we were all just doing what we could. So that was like the first three months, three or four months. And we, we did all that stuff. And then... Um, and then things started to open up and we were like, great, you know, eat out to help out in August. Every, everything, everything's getting better. Oh, God. And then freaking. <laughs> so, yeah, Groundhog Day again. Oh, yeah. And then it was just a grind. I mean, it's we twisted and turned so many different ways and we we just tried to focus on our product and emerge stronger than we went in. That was really our, our main goal while, while trying to burn as, as little money as possible. And uh, and we've actually done, I think, really well on that. So our product's definitely stronger now than it was. And we are just really looking forward to getting back to growing like we were before the pandemic now. Yeah. And I th- I'm, I'm sure many people listening to this will be feeling the same way. But I mean, Firstly, kudos to you. I mean, you've shown some incredible leadership, I think, during that what is a very trying time. And I just wondered whether, you know, it sounded like your team really got around this, you know, got together, pulled through and and delivered some incredible stuff and did some great work for the community. Would you put that down to one particular thing? Is that down to the people that you've hired? Is it the culture you've built? I'm just interested because I guess a lot of companies, you know, it would have been panic stations and, and possibly wouldn't have, have, have thrived in the way that your business has. Is there something, do you think there's a secret source there that anyone listening to this can learn from? Yeah, definitely. I think it is It is definitely recruiting and culture. So, I mean, I think recruiting is a very important part of culture. And I, I think of them as just part of the same thing, really. So we recruit based on values as well as skills. Uh, sometimes you hear people say that they just recruit on values and I've never done, I've never done that. Like you, yeah, they have to be really good at their jobs as well, yeah. but we do recruit on values as well. And so everyone, everyone at Cory Kids without exception is totally aligned with the mission. And we spend a lot of time just reminding people, you know, why we're doing what we're doing. We try to make it really real. We talk about, you know, individual nannies, individual families a lot. We kind of highlight like wonderful stories that have that come out when a nanny does something incredible. And, you know, parents are always saying that like, we've changed their life and stuff. And we try to just remind everyone why we're here all the time, even if they're doing like back end code, you know, every, everyone, everyone has that connection. So that's one thing. And then, um, yeah, and then the other thing I think is we try to give people a lot of autonomy and partner that with a lot of transparency. So, you know, we we always try to give everyone maximum context and then trust them to make their own decisions and try to be really clear about what our overall strategy is, but encourage innovation within that. And what that means is that when you're in a fast moving environment like a crisis or, you know, all of a sudden the environment changes, all of a sudden there's a lockdown, you don't, people are not waiting to be told what to do. Like they have all the information they need. You know, they understand the context. They know the product. They they trust each other. Like they know they're all mission aligned. 
you know, all you need to do is sort of remind everyone, okay, here's the overall strategy. And in our case, it was like, make the product better. We want to be stronger when we come out than when we get in. Help our parents and our nannies do anything you can, like to to help them out, no matter what it is. And all you need is like that level of guidance and permission. And then when you've got smart, mission aligned people who who understand the context, they'll just do the stuff. So you know the the example of the weekly activities and the daily plan as an example. I I didn't tell anyone to do that. Like one of our junior people just did that, and you know she has an early childhood degree and she knew what she was doing, and she was like, this is a good thing to do, so she just did it. And the same with the furlough scheme. I didn't tell anyone to do that. You know, a couple of our people just said, oh, I think we I think we should do something like this. You know, just here's a, here's a one pager on it. And, and I said, oh, it looks brilliant. Go ahead. <laughs> and then they just did it. So you can I think that's when you know you've got it right. When you've got you're empowering people and talented individuals to to come up with ideas and run with things. And, and you know, they're all bought in by that same mission. That's just that's just amazing to see. And, and, and you said uh, you talked about just being really focused as well. And I think that's an area where I've seen some startups and scale ups. Things can go slightly awry when, you know, everyone's trying to do lots of different things and be really proactive. But actually having that common goal and that, you know, it sounds like the team are really behind that mission, which really helps. Yeah, I mean, this for me, that is the hardest thing because mm. I want to do everything. I think this is a pretty common <laughs> founder thing, you know, also yeah. it's very common when you have a very strong vision to be super impatient that it doesn't exist yet and, and want to, you know, not want to build it brick by brick, but want to build like loads of bricks at once. And I definitely suffer from that. I'm very conscious of it. And uh, so prioritizing and not doing things, I find it almost physically painful, but it it just has to be done. But I do find that really hard. I wanted to let you know about a podcast that I'm a huge fan of, Squiggly Careers. Hosts Helen and Sarah have released over 200 episodes covering pretty much every career challenge you can face, from preparing for interviews to dealing with distraction. So if you want some career inspiration and lots of ideas for action, this podcast will help. Just search for Squiggly Careers wherever you listen to your podcasts. How have you worked on that yourself? Because I must admit, you know, I run a much smaller business, six person business, but I... I, I've struggled with exactly the same thing. I, I'm a bit of a, I love the variety. I love trying new things. I love learning stuff. I love, you know, yeah, I just, I get very excited by that challenge, but I know it's not always in the business's best interest. So how have you had to kind of sort of evolve your leadership style to uh, to not always go after everything? Yeah, I've asked a lot of people the question, you know, people I really admire in business, like how do you figure out how many things your business can cope with doing at once? Like if you want to do 10 different things, okay, you probably shouldn't do 10, but is five too many? Is three too many? I found that question hard. And the best answer I've ever had is that the limiting factor is basically management capacity. So you you should figure out who your best managers are, like who's your management cadre, and then figure out how many projects they can work on at once and maybe like as in overseeing. And then you can put, you know, whether it's freelancers or contractors or agencies or permanent people, you can put them underneath your managers. But the limiting factor is the manager's capacity. And I find that quite a useful way of thinking about it. And um, the other thing is I find it very helpful to work with people who have the opposite instinct to me on this. So I've worked with a couple of people. They happen to have been 
product and tech people. I think a lot of engineers really, really like to work on a very small number of things, ideally one. And I find talking to them really helpful because they just always challenge me on like, <laughs> like, why are you doing so many things? Yeah, that's really interesting. Now, that I'm, and I'm sure uh, others listening to this will find that that really helpful. I wanted to talk a bit about, yeah, we talked about culture here and, and, and remote working has obviously been something we've all been wrestling with. Do you have any advice from any leaders that are listening or, or, or managers that are trying to lead a team remotely, trying to continue to evolve a culture and, uh, and also encourage kind of positivity at a time when this has been dragging on far too long? Is there anything that you, you guys have learned in your team that have, has really helped sort of maintain that culture? Yeah, I think we've we tried a lot of the same things that a lot of people tried. So, you know, we had like fun channels on Slack and we had, you know, Zoom drinks and we've had a few Zoom parties. My favorite thing that we've ever done. So we did we've done like escape rooms and stuff on Zoom, which is Oh, been- yeah, we did that. It's great fun. <laughs> Very funny. Yeah. My favorite one we've ever done was we did a, a Connect 4 tournament, um which was honestly oh, wow. extremely exciting. <laughs> but but I think like like everyone, we've kind of got over that as the year has gone on. I think there's very little substitute for getting together physically. And I think the future of Quarry Kids is going to be, I think we're going to be hybrid. I think we'll have a small office where people like me will probably go in something like once a week, maybe, maybe a little bit more, maybe a little bit less. And I expect the junior people will probably go in them pretty much all the time, most days, because they want to see each other. And then I think we'll, because we'll be saving saving money on rent, I think we'll probably spend it on like fun in person, you know, maybe it's a day a month or something that we will do something and have a big summer party and, you know, all that kind of thing. So I think, I think there's that. I think the other thing that knits us together is the weekly cadence that works for us is we have a stand up in the morning, which is optional, but most people go. And that is only 15 minutes long. And each each day of the week, we focus it on a different topic. And uh, so a different team kind of talks about what they're doing. But uh, but everyone goes. And I think that helps kind of keep that connection. And then Wednesday afternoon, we have an all hands where we talk about what's going on at the company level. And we have a thing called Meet a Koru Kid, which is where some one team member basically does their life story in about 15 minutes. And that's been really nice. Oh, I love that. Especially, yeah, especially for people who have joined during and then on Friday, in at the end of the day, we have what's called a showcase, and uh, we have you present shipped things. They have to they have to be real live things that have you, that you've achieved during the week. And there's a maximum of three minutes per presentation. So it's just it, it, like an engineer might might show their code, for example, and and like really show their code, kind of show it on. And that's a, a really lovely celebration of progress and it ends the week on a really high note. It also allows everyone from every team to get some kind of sense of what everyone else is working on. Um, and it's quite fun. It's usually quite funny. So that cadence has worked for us, I think. Oh, no, it, so- it sounds like, uh, yeah, you guys have done such a, good, such a good job. And before we sadly get to the end, uh, Rachel, I, one of the big parts of Crew Kids uh, centers around supporting parents that are balancing parenthood with, you know, their careers, which is, is, is challenging. And I think particularly, you know, impacts women more than men. How have you personally juggled being a parent with scaling a high growth business? Yeah, it's definitely not easy. I've got a three-year-old and a six-year-old and Working from home has actually been really great. I mean, I do get to see them a lot now without any commute or anything. 
as you would expect, I have really, really great childcare. <laughs> so that definitely <laughs> helps. And uh, I definitely couldn't have done it without our wonderful nanny. And then I think the other thing is my husband is definitely a 50-50 parent. And I think I couldn't have done it without that. I think, um, you know, I think it was Cheryl Sandberg who said the most important decision a woman is going to make for her career is who her partner is. And I couldn't agree more on that. I think, you know, th- those are the three ingredients for me. I guess really good childcare, 50-50 partner, and and just hard work. It's it's it is really hard. I'm tired most of the time. Yeah, yeah, no, I I totally totally get that. And just on the how have you supported your team? Is it is a sort of similar approach? And how has that had to change over the years as you've grown the business? In terms of parenting, you mean? Uh, have you got a particular take in terms of how you support you know parents within crew kids? Yeah, I I think. There's some intangible stuff and some tangible stuff. So tangibly, we give 50% off Cory Kids childcare to our parents and childcare, anyone who pays for childcare knows how expensive it is. Yeah, that's amazing. It is a huge, it's worth like many thousands. It's a very significant amount of their comp. So there's that, that's very tangible. And then intangibly, I think we've just tried to make, well, it is just a really, really good place to be as a parent. So we all totally understand that, uh, you know, the, the importance of being flexible with hours. And we've got lots of people in the team who stop work at 2.30, go and pick up their kids, spend a couple of hours with them, and then maybe like log back on and do a little bit more in the evening, or maybe don't, and they arrange their time some other way. And that is completely fine. And one of the things that just never fails to surprise me is we've got a number of people in the team who came to us from other industries and you know they'll they'll say like I'm so I'm so delighted with the flexibility I can get at Corey Kids and I say to them what did you ask for in your old job that that they wouldn't give it to you and then when they tell me it's it's just it's nothing you know we've got one we've got one person I'm thinking of who wanted to I think it was she wanted to take off an afternoon a week or something like that and we've got another one who wanted to start slightly late on two days. And, you know, these, these businesses, they lost an incredible person. because Easy, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Like, because they wouldn't do this extremely easy thing. It just, I find it mind-boggling. So I think the future is moving towards that, though. I, I, mean, I think those other firms are dinosaurs. I think one will become more flexible. A bit unfortunate for us because we'll lose our edge, but we'll just have to... <laughs> to parents in some other way yeah no definitely definitely well, well thank you so much Rachel we're, we're pretty much at the end I've just got three quick wrap-up questions you won't be surprised to know that given this is called 40 minute mentor that I'm a big believer in the power of mentorship so do you have a mentor that's helped you on your career journey and I wanted to ask if there was one person that you could be mentored by who would that be Cool. Yeah. So I don't have a mentor, but I can, or rather, I don't have one mentor. I think I have about a hundred mentors. I think I treat a lot of people as mentors and um, I'm constantly asking people to share their experience. And um, I'm constantly trying to set up, you know, quick phone calls to ask some very pointed questions about how people do stuff and learn from them. I think that's actually something I learned when I was consulting, because a lot of consulting is is asking one person the answer and then telling it to a different person. As well. <laughs> Indeed. Um, and so I learned how to do that. So, so yeah, I think mentorship is incredibly important, but I don't think it has to be one person. It's my answer. Yeah, I agree. And then, yeah, who would I like to learn from? 
Uh, I'm torn between Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos. Oh, interesting. <laughs> well, I, I know both of them are very controversial and possibly total dickheads, or well, not even possibly in the case of Elon Musk, <laughs> but they have undeniably have been, un, you know, incredible executors at what they've done. And I just would love, I'd just love to observe, like, I, I'd love to shadow either of them and just understand, like, what do they do in a in a day? You know, what do they do in the meetings? Like, how do they interact with people? How, just how? How do they make things happen in the way that they make them happen? That's what I'd like to do. Yeah, I love that. Love that answer. And in terms of the, uh, I think this is a question that probably some people listening will be interested in. You've had so much success as a scale-up leader in your own right. Take out the fact that you're a woman, but sadly, the tech industry is still male-dominated, particularly when it comes to VCs and founders who receive funding. So, I just wanted to know. Do you have any particular advice for any women entrepreneurs out there that might be raising at the moment or just or starting up businesses? Yeah, I do. And um, one thing that I think was very important for me when I was raising was actually just to put that fact out of my head completely. I think the fact that certain groups, be it women, people of color, you know, lots of different groups don't get as much access to capital is a really big issue that we definitely work on and solve. However, I think at an individual level, when it's you in the room raising the money, I think you should just not think about it at all. I think it is it is like a little worm in your head that is going to distract you from your main goal, which is like conveying the opportunity and the excitement of the opportunity and the confidence and, you know, letting this investor possibly accompany you on this journey that you're definitely going to go on. You know, that's the, you need to be like Beyonce has the alter ego Sasha Fierce, right? <laughs> you need to find your Sasha Fierce. Love that. If you are partly thinking about, oh, I'm at a disadvantage, you are not being Sasha Fierce. Sasha Fierce would True. never that, right? So <laughs> you just try to not even, even, think about it, try to not read headlines, don't read articles about it, like read them later. They're really important later, but not while you're fundraising. That's, that's my advice. Brilliant advice, Rachel. And I will be using that. You need to find your Sasha fears. That is that is going to come out again. <laughs> Thank you so much. And, and final question before we finish up for any listeners that are thinking about making a big career move, whether it's maybe starting a, a business, what final piece of advice would you leave them with? I think just be a sponge. I think a lot of the problems that any entrepreneur has comes when they think that they know things and they don't. So I think just be hyper conscious that you have so many blind spots. You have there are so many unknown unknowns and just be a sponge, learn as much as you can from everyone all the time. Fantastic. Thank you, Rachel. That's a wonderful place to leave it. Really appreciate you giving up your time and being a fantastic 40 minute mentor. And yeah, we wish you all the very best for the years ahead. I know you're doing some incredible business. It's really making a difference. So uh, yeah, you've got our full support. Thank you very much. Thank you, Rachel. I really hope you enjoyed that episode of the 40 Minute Mentor. And if you did, please leave us a review and tell your friends so we can continue to bring you awesome interviews from inspiring entrepreneurs and business leaders. Please also feel free to reach out at info at jbmc.co.uk. Thanks again for all your support.